All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to see you all this morning. If you would be turning in your Bibles, actually to Isaiah 53. Uh, we'll read that passage here in just a moment, and then we'll be in John uh, 1 uh, to, to uh, continue our journey in the Advent season. The, the question that I want to ask you first and foremost, I think is a, is a pertinent question, certainly to what we're going to be studying this morning. Uh, what has captured your attention most this Advent season? What, what has kind of garnered the majority of your energy, your focus, your time, what you've thought about? What really has captured uh, your, your attention this Advent season? For those of you visiting with us, uh, I did have somebody say, I didn't, I didn't know what the word Advent was, and they looked it up, and Wikipedia was actually right on this one, uh, is that it just means coming. And so Advent is a reference to the coming of Christ. Uh, he, he came the first time, and he's coming again. And so what, what has, what's garnered your focus? And that's worth us thinking about from young to old, uh, especially for kids. A lot of times what kind of garners their focus in the Advent season is what are they going to get materialistically? And that can be either a very disappointing reality come Christmas morning uh, when they don't get what they asked for because parents either couldn't afford it or they just didn't want to give it to them or whatever may have gone on, or uh, they may feel affirmed in what they got only to discover that it breaks very quickly or that it is not exactly as it had been billed or whatever it may be. Oftentimes, our expectations are failed. And for parents, you may have focused so much on what you're going to give that you're worn out and can't enjoy the season at all. And maybe you're worn out because maybe you couldn't provide all that you thought your kids wanted and or needed. Um, and and maybe, maybe it is that uh, you are disappointed when you see their reaction. They're not as excited about what you got them as you, th- as, as you thought. Um, as it turns out, the Encyclopedia Britannica set is not as exciting as it once was. And so, uh, so while you may be giving, giving your kids a slice of history, uh, it may not be as exciting as you once thought. So um, there's all kind of things that, that kind of vie for our time. Family struggles are heightened this time of year, are they not? Um, many of us will celebrate with people who are missing for various reasons. Either they passed this year or last year or the previous years, or, or there's some rift that keeps us apart, or it's that they live in another country, or any number of things that change how this Christmas will feel to us. And so maybe that's garnered your attention. Um, there's all kind of things that will vie for our attention, and, and it's a sad thing to me that oftentimes what we confess is this, I can't wait for Christmas to be over. What a sad statement about what it ought to be. And so, for us, the people of God, we are called to struggle and push against those kind of ideas and to strive to actually behold the very reason for which we celebrate this season. And we have, and it is an excellent opportunity, actually, because despite all of the flap that we've seen over the years, from the happy holidays stuff to does Xmas really mean what I think it means, or the Starbucks cup color flap that we seem to survive, uh, and they made all kind of money off of. Uh, and so, so all those things are kind of distractions. However, the world is always a bit more willing to hear about Jesus during this season. You know, we often decry those who are um, priesters, those who show up at Christmas and Easter, uh, but it is an opportunity, and, and we should not decry that opportunity ever. 
for them to behold the Lamb of God. But it's so important that if they're going to behold anything that's worth sticking around for after Christmas and before Easter, we have to live in such a way that shows them something tangible, that Christ did come in the flesh, that he is the attributes of God, the very glory of God made manifest in this world. And if we offer nothing tangible, no reason, there's no reason to believe they would stick around. And so we have this fantastic opportunity that begins with what it is that we are beholding. Not just what they're beholding, but what we are beholding this Advent season. And so uh, I want to read Isaiah 53. We'll actually read this in a couple of different parts, but I want to start with verses 1 through 3 so that we recognize that, that how different and countercultural Jesus really is in terms of his display in this world. Um, and how we oftentimes, I think, get that very wrong in how we try to display God's glory in this world. Listen to what Isaiah 53, 1 through 3 says about this coming Jesus. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And of whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That's really important that we, that we not forget that, that, that Jesus was not going to be something that anybody would look at visibly and say, I want to follow that guy because of what he looks like, right? I want to follow him because he just stands out in a crowd. I want to follow him because he says some really cool things that are tweetable, Right? Or Snapchatable or whatever it is that we're doing at this point to minimize and be more adolescent. And so Jesus is, was never going to be this, this explosion, right? The explosion actually was for just a, a small band of shepherds, right? You do get that they really are the only ones in all of the universe who beheld something so specific and unique. Even the wise men who would have loved to have seen an astrological event like what the shepherds saw. They didn't get to see that. But they came and they beheld the babe himself. A little bit older, he's probably more of a child at the time that they showed up. And so it's not going to be some grand explosion that draws our attention. And again and again and again, I think we with our Christianity keep trying to come up with a grand explosion that we wish we, we would whip ourselves more into some sort of frenzy, that our music would be more moving and hit us in the gut. And as Rich Mullins often said, maybe it's not the spirit, it's just the kick drum that you feel. And so be careful that, that you don't become patently unbiblical in what you expect from Christ and the church and Advent itself. It will always be far more quotidian and far more leaven-like than you will ever, ever, ever be able to recognize with the naked eye. And it goes on to say, not only did we not desire him, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and listen, we esteemed him not. 
And so this Jesus who's going to come is not going to be immediately recognizable based on how the world judges leaders and messiahs and Christ's. He's going to be something very, very different. So it's going to require some people to prepare the way. It's going to require some people to say to us, behold, because we would never look in the place where he is or at the person that he is. We're just not wired that way. In fact, a huge part of the fall is that we are blind to the very image and glory of God in all things. If we don't recognize that, that's one of the reasons that in Scripture it says all of the time that we are blind and we are deaf. It is not that the image has changed, you understand. Because if the glory of God could be changed, what would that make him? No better than you and I, actually. But because the glory of God is unchanging, that's just good Bible, that means that something in us changed in the fall, and in our brokenness, and we continue to cultivate, unfortunately, that blindness and that deafness. Year after year, some of you are about to declare some New Year's resolutions, and some of those resolutions will be, I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible more as if that declaration alone is going to be sufficient. As many of you have found, it is not. If you don't see the value in engaging Scripture, if you don't see the value in prayer, and if we're not encouraging one another in those things, they will not come to fruition. But if you do, if you invest, I promise you, if you begin investing in January, it will change what Advent looks like in 2018 for you. And so we have to behold, we have to train and cultivate our vision. We have to biblically know what does Christ actually look like? And where are we actually seeing him? And where is God actually at work in this world? And where actually is the church biblical? Would love it if one of the great challenges that we received, unfortunately, the main challenge we receive is often entertainment or consumer-based. Why can't you guys be more entertaining? Why, why, can't, you, why can't you do things that, 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 that we like and are fun? Right? I, I thought eternity would be a pretty fun thing, but I, I don't know. Uh, and so, so um, why, 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 can't you, why can't you just be more of what resonates with me and makes it easy for me to behold instead of constantly challenging us to be disciples and grow and, and, and putting the cookies on the low shelf. Whereas instead, I'd love it if the critique was actually, hey, here in Scripture it says, and as that is connected to the whole of the redemption story, why aren't we doing more of that? Somebody answer that. Uh, um, they may be, may be calling with my present. Amazon may be delivering even now. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, and so, so would, I, I would love it if we became more biblically literate such that it, it actually made our job a little bit harder because we were having to answer questions that were biblically based and explain things from a biblical perspective instead of constantly pushing against entertainment and consumerism and adolescence. And so here we have John the Baptist, where John 
who's writing the gospel is not the same as John the Baptist, so, so that we're clear on that. And, and he's transitioned from his prologue where he has described who Jesus is both in divinity and in the flesh, that he is divinity writ large in the human being. And, and so now he's going to transition to the one who's preparing the way. Unfortunately, we didn't get to hear a portion of that story a couple of weeks ago because of the snow. But we'll pick up here where John the Baptist begins to point to Christ and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, that statement alone, we could spend Sundays plenty just going through what each word means and, and what it all means. And we kind of do every Sunday. Um, but if you would turn your attention to the text, this is John 1, and I'll read verses 29 through 34. The next day, he, being John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, as we look at this, John the Baptist is calling for all those who are gathered around to fix their eyes on God's provision for their atonement. He uses this term, Lamb of God, and scholars have spent an inordinate amount of energy trying to, <laughs> trying to do all kind of weird stuff with this. But again, if we are people of the book, let's let the book kind of teach us. And we know that John, who wrote the gospel, was very familiar with Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and in particular Isaiah 53. And so if you would flip back with me to Isaiah 53 for just a moment and hear uh, what is predicted and how this fits in with who Christ is. I'll pick it up in verse four since we've read verses one through three and I'll read um, through, uh, through seven. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every single one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before us, before us its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So to point to Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God has 
implications of atonement. And that atonement just means for a debt to be paid, right? So what are the wages of sin? All right, there's a few Christians in here. Yes, it's death, as it turns out. And, and how many sins are requisite for said, said payment? Just take a breath. You're born into original sin. And you may say, well, that's not fair. You're right. Never was. That's why Jesus came. Because you're right. It's not fair. It is not what we were created for. It is not what God designed for us. You're right. It is not fair that we should pay for someone else's debt. It is not fair that someone should have to pay for our debt, but he does. So if fair is what we want, ultimately, just remember what you're speaking of is some sort of distorted caste system that is completely outside of your control. And so, praise God, that he comes to take away the sin of the world. Which means, and is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant, that every tongue, tribe, and nation would be represented by the people of God. That that there is no one who is by birth, by class, by race, by sexuality, by any of these categories automatically out. No one. Automatically out based on those things. The only thing that leaves one out is to not behold the Lamb of God and to not receive the very Lamb of God as the only atonement by which you can be saved. That will leave you out if Christ is the sole payment. And according to the word, he is. There's none, no superman coming after him. Receive him not and you will receive your just due. And so here, John is saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he has to do that because, again, we are blind. And we would not look at Jesus and go, yeah, I think he's the guy. And if you pay attention and read any of the Gospels, do remember that most of his sermons ended poorly, right? Remember the sermon that he gives on the Lord's Supper, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And if you remember the math, there were 5,000 people or so gathered, 4,988 walked away. And the other 12 weren't real sure. Because he had to turn to them and say, are you leaving also? And they said, well, uh, we've given up an awful lot. I don't know where else to go. Do remember that one of the sermons that he preached on race, and yes, it was on race, in, in Luke chapter 4, when he said, God did in fact save uh, um, a Canaanite widow, and God did in fact save a Syrian military leader, and everybody went crazy and wanted to kill him, and he had to do one of those supernatural things that only he can do, which is somehow disappear into a crowd. And notice what he had done was quote Isaiah 61 when he got in trouble. And what does Isaiah 61 say? The spirit of the Lord is upon me to set free the oppressed, to give them beauty for ashes. Oh, we can't have that kind of preaching around here. You go just letting anybody in and there'll be no standards. Interesting. 
as if the Abrahamic covenant had not already set the standard that all of the nations would be blessed in Abraham. And so, here we see that it takes someone saying to us, behold, in order for us to do so. And behold is not just glance, by the way. It's not just take a cursory look at. It is to really pay attention to. It is to give your full senses to whatever this is that we are being called to behold. And he's saying, behold your redemption. And that should be worthy of our attention, should it not? I, I think sometimes that we are, we are, again, familiarity can breed contempt, right? And, and for some of us, it's like, do we have to talk about Jesus every Christmas? Talk about something else? Um, and, and I think that we forget really how bad off and broken we really are, that our need for redemption requires us. And I love how in the song, Behold the Lamb, it says, behold the sin of man. That if we really thought about how broken and devious and, and, uh, and selfish and materialistic and manipulative we really are, I think we would say, yeah, I want to turn my gaze from that to something greater. And that something greater would be the Lamb of God, the one who redeems us so that we can behold ourselves as redeemed and offer this world something of value. And too often, we don't, we don't want to deal with anything serious, right? We become an incredibly adolescent culture. And listen, uh, I am dealing firmly with a plank that is about, I don't know how long it is, but it's really causing my head to dip on this issue because I am, I am gifted at sarcasm, uh, I am gifted at irony. I am gifted at sending funny gifts. I am gifted at getting the joke. I am gifted at all those things. But, but I want to confess to you, I don't know that that's good. Um, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I know it's not. In fact, one of my favorite authors, David Foster Wallace, has a saying. I'm going to read to you a section from his essay here in just a minute. It's actually just a footnote. Um, but he has this saying. He says, irony has killed sincerity. And you could say sarcasm has killed sincerity. We, we don't know how to actually love each other really well anymore because we're so busy just being silly. Like, think about this. When I challenge you, hey, we really need to be praying for each other. Like, it would be awesome if when this service ends, because you know everybody in your row needs prayer, and you're like, I don't know their name. I don't, I don't want to touch them or anything. I don't, you ain't got to touch people to pray for them, as it turns out. Uh, but, but we do. We poo-poo that, don't we? Like, we're all like, oh, psh, psh, pray. We talk about the Falcons, bro. We gotta rise up. We got the Saints today. We're talking, you wanna pray for something? Let's pray for that. They're gonna need it. It's in, in New Orleans, as it turns out. Right? And so, we, as men in particular, as men in particular, this saddens me because we know we, know we need it because of how difficult things are for us. In so many respects, we don't wanna. You don't be caught praying for somebody. That's, that's, that's sissified. Like, like we've let things be taken away from us in adolescent culture, and we're just silly. We've just gotten just ridiculous with some of this stuff. And listen, I want you to hear, because David Foster Wallace is a wicked pagan who killed himself, right? And he made it very clear he didn't believe in anything. Um, but he was brilliant in his observations of culture. And this is actually an essay on, on Kafka, 
Franz Kafka. He had to quit teaching Franz Kafka. I saw that, Brent. He had to quit teaching Franz Kafka because his students couldn't understand the humor. Like you may, anybody's read Kafka, how many of you think, oh, he's such a witty guy? If you, yeah, if you get it, I mean, it's not, there's like two of you. But listen to what Foster Wallace says of the culture, and he's writing this in 1999. Listen to what he says. And this is actually a footnote. This is why you should read footnotes. A crude way to put the whole thing is that our present culture is both developmentally and historically adolescent. Now, if you, if you're like, that's not true, um, let me just ask you, um, what age is adolescence currently being brokered for? Does anybody know? Getting close to 30. And that has implications for governance and, and, and healthcare and all kinds of other things. But 30, why in the world? Can you imagine? Anyway, I won't get into all that, but let's, 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 let's carry on. It's historically adolescent. And since adolescence is acknowledged to be the single most stressful and frightening period of human development, the stage when uh, the adulthood we claim to crave begins to present itself as a real and narrowing system of responsibilities and limitations like taxes and death. And we yearn inside for a return to the same childish oblivion we pretend to scorn. It is not difficult to see why we as a culture are so susceptible to art and entertainment whose primary function is escape. Fantasy, adrenaline, spectacle, romance, and etc. Now you may be thinking, what does that even mean? Let me just tell you what he just said. He said, we have become so juvenile in our culture. And I think he's right. And he's writing this in 99. I think what Seinfeld ended in 98, right? Which probably contributes to a lot of this. The office begins sometime after that. And, and so we do, we can quote to you things that are not the Bible, right? We can quote to you the latest jokes and the latest phrases and the latest gifts. And we can, we're just, man, we are, and I know this is making a lot of, I'm uncomfortable. I hate it too, because this is my bread and butter outside of preaching is being ironic. And it's juvenile, I confess. And so don't think I don't get the jokes anymore and that you can't send me stuff anymore. Don't get all weird on me. We can still laugh and have fun, but at, but let's also recognize what the cost is when we make that the primary goal. When we as men and women of God can't talk about serious things. When we as men and women of God can't pray for each other. We can't discuss things because, you know, it's just easier to escape. And I get it. I, I don't want to have some long discussion on Bitcoin or Trump or North Korea. I, I get it. Right? I mean, we're so inundated with certain things. But we need to know how to think about those things. And we need to know how to behold the Lamb of God. And we need to know how to behold things that are good. We need to be able to train a redeemed vision. And this sort of adolescence is not going to get us there. So often what I hear from Christians so patently unbiblical in the solution that it is mind-numbing. The church is crippled, crippled with biblical literacy. And I wish I knew how to fix it quick, but it will not fix quick. But we need to be committed, not only for ourselves, but to the next generation, to be able to say, behold the Lamb of God, and that means something. 
and not be a joke and not something silly. And so it's an issue of primacy, right? And so we need to be a people who can quickly pray for one another, who can quickly offer a word of encouragement, offer some jokes too, right? The balance is there. But don't make it all just some big joke that you're always avoiding things of substance. It's one of the reasons we're sending our kids off to college. And he goes on in the note, I can't read it, it's a little more profane. But he makes the argument, no wonder when people get to college, they go crazy sexually and and substance-wise. Because they're coming up against adulthood. It's one of the reasons that people don't transition well coming out of college. And so we need to be able to train our vision so that we as parents can behold in our children. If you can't cast a vision for the redemption of your child, who's going to? If you don't pray with your child, who's going to? You think the church is our job once a week to make some sort of impact? Or if you show up twice a month or how, whatever it is we're doing these days? You think it's our job? We're, we're part of it. Don't get me wrong. But we can't do it all. And are you, are, we, are you using the resources that you're being given by the church to help train your kids up? Do they know anything about the Nicene Creed after this sermon series? Have you helped them to understand those, the power and all the phraseology? Or have all they heard you do is complain because it's too long? Right? So how are we training and developing and cultivating our ability to behold the Lamb of God in all the places where he is breaking in? And I'm here to tell you the, 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 the news is all, not all bad. We, we should be a people of great hope. Right? I know it sounds like I just eviscerated the church and said we're a bunch of dang juveniles and we might as well be just one giant youth group and we're, we're just going to carry you all back to the ones and twos and just leave you in there for a while until you get your heads on straight. That's, I don't believe that. I think there's good things happening and there is good news, but we have to at times be pushed to behold because we won't do it naturally. We'll move away from it too quickly. And it saddens me that there are groups that I could be in where if I, if I were to say, and you have to confess this, if we were all hanging out, I was like, hey, guys, let's just get together and pray. <laughs> Real, okay, I get it, you're a pastor. What's that? that saddens me. If I broke out the Bible and said, hey, man, this has really been, I've been really wrestling with this. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, vice principal's second season's out. I don't need to deal with that. Uh, that's where we are. So we need to be told to behold the lamb and we need to know that we fight against it. We need to understand that that's not our primary concern. We need help in that regard and we need to help each other in that regard. And the, 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 the goal of it is not that we would be so pious and Victorian that we, we don't get anything. No, uh, that's not what I'm saying. But more that we could actually help one another because we need it. Because we are, we are broken. And we are overwhelmed, and escape has not done what we hoped it would do. It has not made us better. It has not helped us. I mean, he's saying what he's saying in 1999, and look at where we are in many respects. The church is not better off. And so, as he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John makes it very clear, the Baptist does, that he's not the main guy. In fact, he didn't know that that's what 
That's what the Messiah, he didn't know. It's not that he didn't know who Jesus was as a person because he's a family member, but he didn't know that he was the Messiah until he saw the confirmation of the Holy Spirit at his baptism, which, again, John could not have known that if he didn't understand the book of Isaiah. That in Isaiah, it makes it very clear that the Messiah will be the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains. Right? And so, so John knew the word enough to be able to see and look for the Messiah. Too often, we're looking for a Jesus. We have no idea who he is because we don't know the word. We just don't know who and what it ought to look like. And so John is able to know because he had been cultivated in the scriptures themselves. And he did not try to take any sort of um, mantle upon himself. He makes it very clear that Jesus, who comes before him, a reference to his divinity, and who is also man, God and man, is much greater than he is. And so he goes on to make sure that he says, and not only is he the Lamb of God, he is the Son of God. As he concludes his call to, for them to look to Jesus alone for salvation. And so the question for us this morning is not only what has captured our attention, but a better question. Because I think we need to be active in our faith and stop being so just reactive to things. Because again, we act as if the seat, does Christmas, who does Christmas sneak up on really? Like there, we have calendars. We, we've, had, we've been doing this for a while. In fact, we get a lot of help come, we got Christmas in July now. I mean, like it is not really sneaking up on anybody. You, you, you really, it could, you could plan better than you do. Um, but the question is, what are some ways in which this Advent season you have actively sought to behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world? And you may say, well, I came this morning hoping for something nicer message-wise. You're kind of beating us up, man. This ain't Christmassy at all. <laughs> well, yeah, okay. But behold the Lamb who's not silly. He's not adolescent. He was a real man, a man who died for those he loved, a man who laid down his life for his friends, a man who would pray for his people, a man who would step in when they were being sifted like wheat, a man who continues to make intercession for us, even now sitting across the throne, a man who will come back with a sword in his fist and redeem and make all things new. Behold that man. So what are some ways in which you are actively seeking to, to grow in your knowledge of the person and work of Christ this Advent season? And if you've made no provision, well, guess what? You probably won't grow. Because it doesn't happen just by osmosis. In fact, that's why we've been reading Psalm 119, because the psalmist in Psalm 119 is adamant that it is an active participation in the very word of God, the commandments of God, the ways of God that is necessary to grow and go forward. It is not just something that osmotically happens or supernaturally happens. No, in your sanctification, you are called to take up the tools and work. You are called to take and read and eat. You are called to engage it. And too often, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that hard work. We've got too many other things that we're concerned with. Listen to what John Calvin says about this passage. He says, behold the Lamb of God 
The principal office of Christ is briefly but clearly stated that he takes away the sins of the world by the sacrifice of his death and reconciles men to God. There are other favors, indeed, which Christ bestows upon us, but this, this is the chief favor. And the rest depend on it. That by appeasing the wrath of God, he makes us to be reckoned holy and righteous. For from this source flow all the streams of blessings that commences with the gratuitous forgiveness of sins which we obtain through him. One of the devastating aspects of the adolization and juvenilization of our culture is our view of sin. It's become uh, something that's just a diagnosis, right? And, and really the church doesn't even have an answer for you. You just go take some medicine or you go to, to a counselor and they'll deal with this sin stuff. Now, am I against counselors? Absolutely not. I refer all the time and think they're a great help to the church, but that doesn't mean we cease to be a pastor, right? And that doesn't mean that it ceases to be some measure of a sin issue, either that which is part of the brokenness of the world being imposed upon us, Right? Mental illness is real. It's not necessarily even because the person themselves sinned. It's just the brokenness of this world. But there's also sin issues that have to be dealt with within that. And there also has to be discipleship that must be cultivated. We cannot take a low view of sin. Listen to what Calvin says. It's very important that we recognize exactly the weight and the gravity of this situation. So that when we behold the Lamb of God, we get the, the fuller view of what it is we are being given. Amen? There's got to be a few Baptists in here, I think. Amen? Thank you, Baptists. I'm glad you're here. So as we close out this morning, what do we learn from this passage? We learn that Jesus is the Lamb of God who offers salvation to all by removing sin that separates us from God. That is, redemption is the main purpose. And remember, when that sin is removed, what does that allow us to do? to dwell with God, which is the point of the entire story. So often that's we move away from those things and we lose the whole essence. Listen to how John, who also wrote the gospel, concludes um, and brings together what this Lamb of God is. Hear the word from Revelation 5, 6 through 10 as we close out. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. A major portion of us beholding the Lamb of God is to become a kingdom of priests who live out this redemption in tangible and profound ways, who are able to say to others, behold where the Lamb is at work. Our, our, our world is gasping for hope, is it not? It is gasping for something to say this is real. And the church in places has done a pretty poor job, but in other places she's done a fantastic job. We're still here. As I've often said, the class that saved my faith in seminary, I know that's an interesting statement, 
The class that saved my faith in seminary was church history. The first part. If you know anything about the first part of church history up to the Reformation, it is awful. And if the church can survive that, and the church can survive the Civil War, and the church can survive all of the stuff that we've come up with, there has to be a sure hope. Has to be. And so, behold the Lamb of God this Advent season. Behold in, as you gather with your family, look for the places where that lamb is making a difference. Look for the places where the light of the gospel is breaking through and piercing the darkness. Look for the places where God is firmly at work in this oh-so-broken world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us enough to call for us to behold the lamb. Thank you that you didn't make him into anything that we would desire straight away so that we could put claims upon him like we do all of our other earthly leaders. Thank you that he was so radically different that he would die for his friends and that he had friends from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And may we do the same. May we be a people who firmly understand the story of redemption and are able to live it out in creative and unique ways based on our gifts and abilities. Help us, Lord, to not just say in word, behold the Lamb of God, but to say in deed, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May we be a people who between the advents are filled with hope and are filled with creative glory. In Christ's name, amen.